Jesus has taken his followers far outside of their comfort zone to the cities of Tyre and Sidon, northeast of Galilee. He's given deliverance from a demon to the daughter of a Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman. He and his disciples move on again and this time to the far side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's miracle time once more. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair the biblical worldview. Whether you're 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. Today, Jesus will bring the Edenic healing of the kingdom to more people. We start in Mark chapter 7, verses 31 to 32. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be open. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, I love that the main takeaway from the people who witness these miracles is that he has done all things well. What a true statement. I want to point out that Jesus can perform miracles in many different ways. We know he doesn't have to touch anything. We know he doesn't even have to be in the same room or the same location. Here, this man's friends ask Jesus to touch him, and Jesus obliges in the most curious way. Privately, he puts his fingers into his ears, spits, and touches his tongue. Now, did Jesus stick his fingers in the other guy's ears or his own? Did he touch his own tongue or the man's tongue? Did he spit on his hands before touching a tongue, or did he spit directly on a tongue or directly on the ground? I kind of picture Jesus communicating in some form of sign language here. I see Jesus touching his own ears and saying, I'm going to ephatha them. I'm going to open them. And then touching his own tongue saying, I will loosen this. Maybe then the man can respond in faith to the offer. But his friends did ask for the laying on of hands. So maybe Jesus was just touching him in all his face holes. Either way, Jesus looks up to heaven first then sighs, and then heals. Jesus reaches out to help. He does want him to remain quiet about it, to just be chill, but it's just too exciting. The kingdom has come and healed him. Now, last time Jesus was here, he was run off by angry pig farmers. So maybe he's just trying to buy some time. It looks like he gets a few days surrounded by a large crowd. And oh boy, they is hungry. Mark 8, 1 through 10. 
In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that those also should be set before them. And they ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately, he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. No, I'm not repeating myself. Jesus is multiplying fish and loaves again, this time on the other side of the Sea of Galilee amongst the Gentiles. A smaller crowd, 4,000 total, with less leftovers, only seven baskets instead of 12. Still incredible. If you remember, Jesus fed 5,000 people with a lunchbox meal of a young boy. Yet when Jesus shares with his disciples that he would like to feed this second crowd, they haven't got a clue how to get that much food. I don't know if they don't remember the feeding of the 5,000 or they just don't have faith that he can do it again. Sometimes I like to tease and be like, this is why they should keep a journal. But if it's easy for us to look at the situation and say, oh my goodness, if I had been there and I had seen the first feeding, I'd just say, well, Jesus, multiply the food again. But what about when we're in our own situations, in our own world, and we've seen a miracle in the past, but we get stuck in a similar but new situation? Do we say, God, just do it again? Save me from this again? Oftentimes, we doubt we'll ever get out of the mess we're in again. Sometimes we're just a little shy to even ask because we're in the mess again. Many reasons why our trust wavers. This time the disciples themselves have the seven loaves of bread and some small fish. And in similar fashion, Jesus multiplies the food until everyone there has eaten and is satisfied, plus the leftovers. These people following Jesus desire the kingdom. It comes in healing. It comes in hospitality. It comes in feeding. It comes in justice. It comes in mercy. And Jesus has compassion on them because they were a people that were so captivated by the coming kingdom that they forgot to eat. I want to be that. I want to be so consumed with Jesus's kingdom that I forget to eat. It's really clear that Jesus can supply all our needs plus leftovers. So we can trust him. Jesus and the disciples leave for Dalmanutha, or what Matthew calls Magadan. It's located on the western side of the lake near Tiberias, so we're now headed to a very Jewish side of the lake. And awaiting him are people who want to see miracles themselves, but they're not like those who forgot to eat. This is the powerful religious class, and they are looking at this point to find reasons to arrest Jesus to kill him. 
rather than find reasons for faith in him. Matthew 16, 1-4 And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test them they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be a stormy day, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Mark tells us that before leaving, Jesus sighed deeply in the spirit and said, Why does this generation ask for signs? It will be given none. Why is Jesus sighing? People want to see more than what is already happening. The lame walk, the deaf hear, the blind see, the lepers are cleansed, people are being fed. The kingdom is breaking through into the fallen world. The religious folks see it and they say, show me something real big. Maybe something that will benefit me instead of the lowly. Maybe something that's a bigger spectacle from heaven like an eclipse. Jesus, you got anything for us? But he knows their hearts and he turns it around on them, reminding them that they can tell the day's weather by looking at the sky, yet none of them can predict the signs of the times, the sign of the Messiah, when it's right in front of their face. Jesus says only the wicked ask for a sign. Now, Mark says they get none. Matthew says that Jesus only offers them the sign that he already offered earlier, which is the sign of Jonah. And by the time they are going to understand what the sign of Jonah is, they will have already killed him. But Jesus says we shouldn't ask for a miraculous sign. For his contemporaries, they saw what he was doing. They saw the acts of compassion, the acts of restoration. And for us, we can read about it. And we can experience it in our lives as people represent his compassion to us. And we can help others experience it when we do the same for them. Yet again, Jesus and his disciples get in their boat and they sail away to another destination. This time, the northeastern shore. More people need to experience the kingdom. Matthew 16, 5 to 12. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it amongst themselves, saying, We've brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the five thousand or the many baskets that you gathered? Were the seven loaves for the 4,000 how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to be aware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh my. So the disciples forget bread And Jesus uses it as a lesson, telling them that they should be concerned about the bread of the religious leaders, which is saturated with false teachings like leaven through all the dough. See, in Jesus' culture, yeast or leaven was a symbol for impurity and wickedness. And Jesus was likely hoping the disciples would catch this, but 
They're stuck on the whole bread thing. Forget the bread, fellas. I got bread covered. Like 9,000 times now, I have bread covered. Also, remember, I'm the bread. But anyway, I'm not talking about bread. I'm symbolizing the religious leaders teaching as leaven, which is evil. One time I was reading this and I wondered what evil did the yeast of the Pharisees contain? Like, if I looked at their record, what anti-fruit would I find that would be the leaven that Jesus is warning about? And I have at least four. We have hypocrisy. They were hypocritically ignoring God's actual words for their traditions. We have rationalization. They were always rationalizing that they were the good guys, uh, righteous even, on their own. We have legalism. They were creating heavy burdens for people to follow that God never intended. And we had actual impurity. Sure, they were washing their hands, but on the inside, these folks were impure, looking to maintain control and keep the lowly low. Where there is hypocrisy, rationalization, legalism, and impurity, you're going to find people. People do this. You'll also have heartache and abuse. These things suck the life out of people. Jesus wants his followers to be aware of it and avoid it. Where could this possibly not exist? Only in the kingdom. So we can go ahead and be on guard against false teachers, the icky, evil bread fed to the masses. To round out the day, Jesus and the disciples land at Bethsaida, which is a small fishing village that Peter, Andrew, and Philip were from, um, even though that Peter and Andrew were now at this point living in Capernaum. And immediately people there are pushing Jesus to do a miracle. It's a theme. Mark 8, to 26. And they came to Bethsaida, and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Ah, Jesus, what are you doing here? You're like spitting in people's eyes. You, you can't spit in your own eyes, so I have to believe you're spitting in this guy's eyes. But I guess he couldn't see it coming, am I right? Okay, sorry. Now, some scholars think this man might have been blinded by an accident that left his eyes damaged, uh, like through slicing, rather than the traditional blind malfunction of the parts of the eye. If this is the case, then maybe the warm spit could be soothing to the man before the miracle. I suppose, <laughs> but we have no idea. What we're told is that the first spit and the laying of hands is a partial healing. The guy isn't blind, but he needs glasses. He can't see people. He sees walking trees. And as much as I wish this was a Middle Earth reference, it's likely just the disciples moving around in the man's blurry vision, which is kind of funny because that is about as well as the disciples are seeing and understanding Jesus at this point. 
they all have their own mixed motives and desires that would be blocking their understanding of Jesus. This is the only time that a healing of Jesus starts halfway working. There must be a reason Mark alone tells us the story. Why does it make his edit of the official authorized story, but Mark, Luke, and John leave it out? Does it work for the reader to see the parallels between the disciples and the man? Jesus puts his hands on his eyes and the man's vision is fully restored. And this is what we want all followers of Jesus to have. And Jesus can make it so. Now, if you want evidence that Mark is using this progressive miracle as a storytelling tool, look at what follows. Mark 8, 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Yes, Peter, on behalf of the disciples as a whole, finally sees clearly. If Jesus has been a vague magician, he is no longer. And if Jesus has been an unclear rabbi, he is no longer. And if he has been an indistinct passive revolutionary, he is no longer. In the eyes and the hearts of these disciples, Jesus is the true Messiah, what the Greeks call the Christ the promised son of the living God. They have already believed, but now they are willing confessors of this clear truth. The kingdom they have been proclaiming has a king, and they can see it, and they can proclaim him now. It hasn't been professed in Cana. It hasn't been professed in Capernaum, not in Nazareth, Decapolis, or Bethsaida. However, way off the beaten trail in Caesarea Philippi, the disciples see and they say. First, they saw other people claim Jesus is John the Baptist, Elijah, or other prophets. Jesus is still disguised in, in the public from who he really is. But they know that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Philip told Nathaniel way back in the beginning that they had found the Christ. Yet only now is that statement cemented in their eyes. This makes them as dangerous as a yammering demon. And he tells the disciples the same advice that he gives the demons. And many people he has cured. Don't tell anyone. Now, sometimes I kind of wish Jesus would ask that of me because I would have no problem with that mission. But that's the opposite of what he instructed people after his resurrection. So it just isn't time for the big reveal. So Jesus is just moving within God's will, in God's timing. The religious leaders have already rejected him, and his death is drawing nearer. And this, on the way to Caesarea Philippi, way north, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, again in secular Gentile culture, Matthew 16, 17 to 20. 
And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So Peter has been renamed by Jesus. He was born Simon, but now he is given the name Peter, which all the authors had already been using in their stories. Now, Peter, which is literally translated Cephas, means stone or small rock. It's Petros. So Peter here for the first time begins to fit that description. However, he's not the rock upon which the church is built. And that's probably important. Petros, Peter, is a little stone. Upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. A Petra is not a little stone. It's a massive cliff rock. So this Petra word is the same word that's used metaphorically in other places for Jesus. Jesus builds the church upon himself, just as Paul said Jesus will be the foundation of all our effort. For the full context of this passage, we have to know that Caesarea Philippi is a Gentile city near Mount Hermon at the time, and it featured a large rock face with a cave at the base that once was the source of the Jordan River water. Now, Philip the Tetrarch built a temple to Caesar here, and archaeologists and Bible experts say that there are connections to superstitions of this cave and the underworld. It may have been called and considered the gateway of Hades by the Romans and the Greeks. Now, Caesarea Philippi is far away from the cities that Jesus normally ministers to, and it wasn't even a good field trip location um, when people are looking for reasons to doubt you or to hate you or to kill you because Caesarea Philippi was filled with pagan rituals and ceremony. But Jesus brings his disciples to this location for some reason, and my speculation is the visual aid. Welcome to Hell's Gate, kids. I'm going to build my church upon this Petra, which is I. And these very literal but superstitious gates of hell will not stand against it. It's pretty cool. Wait, build your church? We understand that Jesus means when he says church. But the original disciples could not have. Church was not a common word for them. They didn't go to church. They didn't have churches. Church is the Greek word ekklesia, which means the called out ones from their homes for gathering. Jesus builds a new grace program for the kingdom to utilize from the time of his resurrection until his return. And it's called church. This church of grace in the world today cannot be defeated by the gates of Hades, by any secular ceremony, by any other name. It's a good news salvation message that will be an unstoppable rescue mission from the pits that people find themselves in. And the disciples are given the keys 
a symbol of authority to loosen people's chains and lead them to trust in Jesus. What a program. Does it suck sometimes? Yes. Hurt people hurt people. There are times I can't even go to church because of pain. Sometimes from what was inflicted upon me and sometimes the pain of my own unforgiveness. This promise is for the global universal church, not the American one. If we got problems, we'll suffer for it. If the gospel becomes patriotic or we lose the plot in some other way, it will cost us. But the grand mission continues on. The church is a sanctuary of the kingdom for those living in this world. We go into it to receive hope and strength from one another, and we go out from it bringing compassion and restoration to those who are outside. If the church is bad news, it's because it's not this. Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? Peter says, the Christ. And with the disciples having a huge aha moment about the identity of their rabbi, Jesus can now transition into a different kind of work. He can now begin to speak clearly to his closest friends about what's next. They might have been expecting a lot of things, but the suffering servant who would save us by his own stripes was not ringing any bells. He was going to die. When another king would go ahead and kill others to take the throne, Jesus is going to lay down his own life. The coronation of the king would be painful. It would be destructive to his own body, but extremely effective against the enemies of sin and death. This area of his life, Jesus had kept to himself, but he can begin to let others now know. In this account, Jesus gets an opportunity to give them the keys of heaven, the keys of the kingdom, to release people from bondage. Yet he doesn't want them to share these ideas with anyone yet. He trusts his friends with these things to be secrets at first, which is pretty cool that Jesus trusts his friends with secrets. We may struggle with trusting others and we fear the worst in people, sometimes especially the church. But Jesus demonstrates letting his friends know him and trusting them with that knowledge. Can we trust like Jesus? As we continue to build our biblical worldview, we want to think about what in our minds needs renewed. Honest gut check here. How much kingdom did we bring to someone else this week? That is the unstoppable church going in to receive hope and strength and going out to bring compassion and restoration. Until the return of the king, this is the mission. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, Jesus will talk about dying.